0: The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving. Part two. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Bob Neufeld. It was, as I have said, a fine autumnal day. The sky was clear and serene, and Nature bore that rich and golden livery which we always associate with the idea of abundance. The forests had put on their sober brown and yellow while some trees of the tenderer kind had been nipped by the frosts into brilliant dyes of orange purple and scarlet streaming files of wild ducks began to make their appearance high in the air the bark of the squirrel might be heard from the groves of beech and hickory nuts and the pensive whistle of the quail at intervals from the neighbouring stubble-field the small birds were taking their farewell banquets in the fullness of their revelry they fluttered, chirping and frolicking from bush to bush and tree to tree, capricious from the very profusion and variety around them. There was the honest cock-robin, the favorite game of stripling sportsmen with its long querulous note, and the twittering blackbirds flying in sable clouds, and the golden-winged woodpecker with his crimson crest, his broad-black gorget and splendid plumage and the cedar bird with its red-tipped wings and yellow-tipped tail and its little montero cap of feathers and the blue jay that noisy coxcomb in his gay light blue coat and white underclothes screaming and chattering nodding and bobbing and bowing and pretending to be on good terms with every songster of the grove as ichabod jogged slowly on his way his eye ever open to every symptom of culinary abundance ranged with delight over the treasures of jolly autumn on all sides he beheld vast store of apples some hanging in oppressive opulence on the trees some gathered into baskets and barrels for the market others heaped up in rich piles for the cider-press farther on he beheld great fields of indian corn with its golden ears peeping from their leafy coverts and holding out the promise of cakes and hasty pudding and the yellow pumpkins lying beneath them turning up their fair round bellies to the sun and giving ample prospects of the most luxurious of pies and anon he passed the fragrant buckwheat fields breathing the odor of the beehive and as he beheld them, soft anticipations stole over his mind of dainty slapjacks, well buttered and garnished with honey or treacle, by the delicate little dimpled hand of Katrina van Tassel. Thus, feeding his mind with many sweet thoughts and sugared suppositions, he journeyed along the sides of a range of hills which look out upon some of the goodliest scenes of the mighty Hudson. The sun gradually wheeled his broad disk down in the west. The wide bosom of the Tappan Zee lay motionless and glassy, excepting that here and there a gentle undulation waved and prolonged the blue shadow of the distant mountain. A few amber clouds floated in the sky without a breath of air to move them. The horizon was of a fine golden tint, changing gradually into a pure apple green, and from that into the deep blue of the mid-heaven. A slanting ray lingered on the wooden crests of the precipices that overhung some parts of the river, giving greater depth to the dark gray and purple of their rocky sides. A sloop was loitering in the distance, dropping slowly down with the tide, her sail hanging uselessly against the mast, and as the reflection of the sky gleamed along the still water, it seemed as if the vessel was suspended in the air it was toward evening that ichabod arrived at the castle of the herr von Tassel, which he found thronged with the pride and flower of the adjacent country old farmers a spare leathern faced race in homespun coats and breeches blue stockings huge shoes and magnificent pewter buckles their brisk withered little dames in close crimped caps long-waisted short gowns homespun petticoats with scissors and pin cushions and gay calico pockets hanging on the outside buxom lasses almost as antiquated as their mothers, excepting where a straw hat, a fine ribbon, or perhaps a white frock gave symptoms of city innovation. The sons, in short, square-skirted coats, with rows of stupendous brass buttons, and their hair generally queued in the fashion of the times, especially if they could procure an eelskin for the purpose it being esteemed throughout the country as a potent nourisher and strengthener of the hair brom bones however was the hero of the scene having come to the gathering on his favorite steed daredevil a creature like himself full of mettle and mischief and which no one but himself could manage he was in fact noted for preferring vicious animals given to all kinds of tricks which kept the rider in constant risk of his neck "'for he held a tractable, well-broken horse "'as unworthy of a lad of spirit. "'Fain would I pause to dwell upon the world of charms "'that burst upon the enraptured gaze of my hero "'as he entered the state-parlour of Van Tassel's mansion. "'Not those of the bevy of buxom lasses "'with their luxurious display of red and white, "'but the ample charms of a genuine Dutch country tea-table.' in the sumptuous time of autumn. Such heaped-up platters of cakes, of various and almost indescribable kinds, known only to experienced Dutch housewives. There was the doughty doughnut, the tender orly kirk, and the crisp and crumbling cruller, sweet-cakes and short-cakes, ginger-cakes and honey-cakes, and the whole family of cakes. And then there were the apple-pies, and peach-pies, and pumpkin-pies besides slices of ham and smoked beef and moreover delectable dishes of preserved plums and peaches and pears and quinces not to mention broiled shad and roasted chickens together with bowls of milk and cream all mingled higgledy-piggledy pretty much as i have enumerated them with a motherly teapot sending up its clouds of vapour from the midst heaven bless the mark i want breath and time to discuss this banquet as it deserves and am too eager to get on with my story happily ichabod crane was not in so great a hurry as his historian but did ample justice to every dainty he was a kind and thankful creature whose heart dilated in proportion as his skin was filled with good cheer and its spirits rose with eating as some men's do with drink he could not help too rolling his large eyes round him as he ate and chuckling with the possibility that he might one day be lord of all this scene of almost unimaginable luxury and splendour then he thought how soon he'd turn his back upon the old schoolhouse snap his fingers in the face of hans von ripper and every other niggardly patron and kick any itinerant pedagogue out of doors that should dare to call him comrade old baltus van tassel moved about among his guests with a face dilated with content and good-humour round and jolly as the harvest moon his hospitable attentions were brief but expressive being confined to a shake of the hand a slap on the shoulder a loud laugh and a pressing invitation to fall to and help themselves And now the sound of the music from the common room or hall summoned to the dance. The musician was an old gray headed negro, who had been the itinerant orchestra of the neighborhood for more than half a century. His instrument was as old and battered as himself. The greater part of the time he scraped on two or three strings, accompanying every movement of the bow with a motion of the head, bowing almost to the ground, and stamping with his foot whenever a fresh couple were to start ichabod prided himself upon his dancing as much as upon his vocal powers not a limb not a fibre about him was idle and to have seen his loosely hung frame in full motion and clattering about the room you would have thought saint vitus himself that blessed patron of the dance was figuring before you in person he was the admiration of all the negroes who having gathered of all ages and sizes from the farm and the neighbourhood stood forming a pyramid of shining black faces at every door and window, gazing with delight at the scene, rolling their white eyeballs, and showing grinning rows of ivory from ear to ear. How could the flogger of urchins be otherwise than animated and joyous? The lady of his heart was his partner in the dance, and smiling graciously in reply to all his amorous oglings, while Brom Bones, sorely smitten with love and jealousy, sat brooding by himself in one corner. When the dance was at an end, Ichabod was attracted to a knot of the Sager folks, who, with old Van Tassel, sat smoking at one end of the piazza, gossiping over former times and drawing out long stories about the war. This neighborhood, at the time of which I am speaking, was one of those highly favoured places which abound with chronicle and great men. The British and American line had run near it during the war. It had, therefore, been the scene of marauding, and infested with refugees, cowboys, and all kinds of border chivalry. Just sufficient time had elapsed to enable each storyteller to dress up his tale with a little becoming fiction, and in the indistinctness of his recollection, to make himself the hero of every exploit. There was the story of Dofu Martling, the large blue-bearded Dutchman, who had nearly taken a British frigate with an old iron-nine-pounder from a mud breastwork, only that his gun burst at the sixth discharge. And there was the old gentleman, who shall be nameless, being too rich a mine hair to be lightly mentioned, who, in the Battle of White Plains, being an excellent master of defence, parried a musket-ball with a small sword insomuch that he absolutely felt it whiz round the blade and glance off at the hilt, in proof of which he was ready at any time to show the sword with the hilt a little bent. There were several more that had been equally great in the field, not one of whom but was persuaded that he had a considerable hand in bringing the war to a happy termination. But all these were nothing to the tales of ghosts and apparitions that succeeded the neighborhood is rich in legendary treasures of the kind local tales and superstitions thrive best in these sheltered long-settled retreats but are trampled underfoot by the shifting throng that forms the population of most of our country places besides there is no encouragement for ghosts in most of our villages for they have scarcely had time to finish their first nap and turn themselves in their graves before their surviving friends have traveled away from the neighborhood So that when they turn out at night to walk their rounds, they have no acquaintance left to call upon. This is perhaps the reason why we so seldom hear of ghosts except in our long established Dutch communities. The immediate cause, however, of the prevalence of supernatural stories in these parts was doubtless owing to the vicinity of Sleepy Hollow. There was a contagion in the very air that blew from that haunted region it breathed forth an atmosphere of dreams and fancies infecting all the land several of the sleepy feeler were present at von tassel's and as usual were doling out their wild and wonderful legends many dismal tales were told about funeral trains and mourning cries and wailings heard and seen about the great tree where the unfortunate major andre was taken and which stood in the neighborhood some mention was made also of the woman in white that haunted the dark glen at raven rock and was often heard to shriek on winter nights before a storm having perished there in the snow the chief part of the stories however turned upon the favourite spectre of sleepy hollow the headless horseman who had been heard several times of late patrolling the country and it was said tethered his horse nightly among the graves in the churchyard the sequestered situation of this church seems almost to have made it a favourite haunt of troubled spirits it stands on a knoll surrounded by locust trees and lofty elms from among which its decent white-washed walls shine modestly forth like christian purity beaming through the shades of retirement a gentle slope descends from it to a silver sheet of water bordered by high trees between which peeps may be caught at the blue hills of the hudson To look upon its grass-grown yard, where the sunbeams seemed to sleep so quietly, one would think that there at least the dead might rest in peace. On one side of the church extends a wide woody dell, along which raves a large brook, among broken rocks and trunks of fallen trees. Over a deep black part of the stream, not far from the church, was formerly thrown a wooden bridge the road that led to it and the bridge itself were thickly shaded by overhanging trees which cast a gloom about it even in the daytime but occasioned a fearful darkness at night such was one of the favorite haunts of the headless horseman and the place where he was most frequently encountered the tale was told of old brewer a most heretical disbeliever in ghosts how he met the horseman returning from his foray into sleepy hollow and was obliged to get up behind him. How they galloped over bush and brake, over hill and swamp, until they reached the bridge. When the horseman suddenly turned into a skeleton, threw Old Brewer into the brook, and sprang away over the tree tops with a clap of thunder. The story was immediately matched by a thrice marvelous adventure of Bram Bones, who had made light of the galloping hessian as an errant jockey. He affirmed that on returning one night from the neighboring village of Sing Sing, he had been overtaken by this midnight trooper, that he had offered to race with him for a bowl of punch, and should have won it, too, for Daredevil beat the goblin horse all hollow. But just as they came to the church bridge, the Hessian bolted and vanished in a flash of fire. All these tales, told in that drowsy undertone with which men talk in the dark, the countenances of the listeners only now and then receiving a casual gleam from the glare of a pipe, sank deep in the mind of Ichabod. He repaid them in kind with large extracts from his invaluable author, Cotton Mather, and added many marvellous events that had taken place in his native state of Connecticut, and fearful sights which he had seen in his nightly walks about Sleepy Hollow. The revel now gradually broke up. The old farmers gathered together their families in their wagons, and were heard for some time rattling along the hollow roads and over the distant hills. Some of the damsels mounted on pillions behind their favorite swains, and their light-hearted laughter, mingling with the clatter of hoofs, echoed along the silent woodlands, sounding fainter and fainter, until they gradually died away. And the late scene of noise and frolic was all silent and deserted. Ichabod only lingered behind, according to the custom of country lovers, to have a tete a tete with the heiress, fully convinced that he was now on the high road to success. What passed at this interview I will not pretend to say, for in fact I do not know. Something, however, I fear me must have gone wrong, for he certainly sallied forth after no very great interval with an air quite desolate and chapfallen. Oh, these women, these women! Could that girl have been playing off any of her coquettish tricks? Was her encouragement of the poor pedagogue all a mere sham to secure her conquest of his rival? Heaven only knows, not I. Let it suffice to say, Ichabod stole forth with the air of one who had been sacking a hen-roost, rather than a fair lady's heart without looking to the right or left to notice the scene of rural wealth on which he had so often gloated he went straight to the stable and with several hearty cuffs and kicks roused his steed most uncourteously from the comfortable quarters on which he was soundly sleeping dreaming of mountains of corn and oats and whole valleys of timothy and clover it was the very witching time of night that ichabod heavy-hearted and crestfallen pursued his travels homewards along the sides of the lofty hills which rise above tarrytown and which he had traversed so cheerily in the afternoon the hour was as dismal as himself far below him the tappan zee spread its dusky and indistinct waste of waters with here and there the tall mast of a sloop riding quietly at anchor under the land in the dead hush of midnight he could even hear the barking of the watch-dog from the opposite shore of the Hudson, but it was so vague and faint as only to give an idea of his distance from this faithful companion of man. Now and then, too, the long-drawn crowing of a cock, accidentally awakened, would sound far, far off from some farmhouse away among the hills, but it was like a dreaming sound in his ear. No signs of life occurred near him, but occasionally the melancholy chirp of a cricket, or perhaps the guttural twang of a bullfrog from a neighboring marsh, as if sleeping uncomfortably and turning suddenly in his bed. All the stories of ghosts and goblins that he had heard in the afternoon now came crowding upon his recollection. The night grew darker and darker, the stars seemed to sink deeper in the sky, and driving clouds occasionally hid them from his sight. He had never felt so lonely and dismal. He was, moreover, approaching the very place where many of the scenes of the ghost stories had been laid. In the centre of the road stood an enormous tulip-tree, which towered like a giant above all the other trees of the neighbourhood, and formed a kind of landmark. Its limbs were gnarled and fantastic, large enough to form trunks to ordinary trees, twisting down almost to the earth, and rising again into the air. It was connected with the tragical story of the unfortunate André, who had been taken prisoner hard by, and was universally known by the name of Major André's Tree. The common people regarded it with a mixture of respect and superstition, partly out of sympathy for the fate of its ill-starred namesake and partly from the tales of strange sights and doleful lamentations told concerning it as ichabod approached this fearful tree he began to whistle he thought his whistle was answered it was but a blast sweeping sharply through the dry branches as he approached a little nearer he thought he saw something white hanging in the midst of the tree he paused and ceased whistling but, on looking more narrowly, perceived that it was a place where the tree had been scathed by lightning and the white wood laid bare. Suddenly he heard a groan. His teeth chattered and his knees smote against the saddle. It was but the rubbing of one huge bough upon another as they were swayed about by the breeze. He passed the tree in safety, but new perils lay before him. About two hundred yards from the tree, a small brook crossed the road and ran into a marshy and thickly wooded glen known by the name of Wylie's Swamp. A few rough logs laid side by side served as a bridge over this stream. On that side of the road where the brick entered the wood, a group of oaks and chestnuts, matted thick with wild grapevines, threw a cavernous gloom over it. To pass this bridge was the severest trial. It was at this identical spot that the unfortunate André was captured, and under the covert of these chestnuts and vines were the sturdy yeoman concealed who surprised him. This has ever since been considered a haunted stream, and fearful are the feelings of the schoolboy who has to pass it alone after dark. As he approached the stream his heart began to thump. He summoned up, however, all his resolution, gave his horse half a score of kicks in the ribs, and attempted to dash briskly across the bridge. But instead of starting forward, the perverse old animal made a lateral movement and ran broadside against the fence. Ichabod, whose fears increased with the delay, jerked the reins on the other side and kicked lustily with the contrary foot. It was all in vain. His steed started, it is true but it was only to plunge to the opposite side of the road into a thicket of brambles and alder bushes the schoolmaster now bestowed both whip and heel upon the starveling ribs of old gunpowder who dashed forward snuffling and snorting but came to stand just by the bridge with a suddenness that nearly sent his rider sprawling over his head just at this moment a plashy tramp by the side of the bridge caught the sensitive ear of Ichabod. In the dark shadow of the grove, on the margin of the brook, he beheld something huge, misshapen and towering. It stirred not, but seemed gathered up in the gloom like some gigantic monster ready to spring upon the traveller. The hair of the affrighted pedagogue rose upon his head with terror what was to be done? To turn and fly was now too late, and besides, what chance was there of escaping ghost or goblin, if such it was, which could ride upon the wings of the wind? Summoning up, therefore, a show of courage, he demanded in stammering accents, "Uh, uh, Who are you? He received no reply. He repeated his demand in a still more agitated voice. Still there was no answer. Once more he cudgelled the sides of the inflexible gunpowder, and shutting his eyes, broke forth with involuntary fervor into a psalm-tune. Just then the shadowy object of alarm put itself in motion, and with a scramble and a bound stood at once in the middle of the road. Though the night was dark and dismal, yet the form of the unknown might now in some degree be ascertained. He appeared to be a horseman of large dimensions, and mounted on a black horse of powerful frame. He made no offer of molestation or sociability, but kept aloof on one side of the road, jogging along on the blind side of old Gunpowder, who had now got over his fright and waywardness ichabod who had no relish for this strange midnight companion and bethought himself of the adventure of brom bones with the galloping hessian now quickened his steed in hopes of leaving him behind the stranger however quickened his horse to an equal pace ichabod pulled up and fell into a walk thinking to lag behind the other did the same his heart began to sink within him he endeavored to resume his psalm tune but his parched tongue clove to the roof of his mouth, and he could not utter a stave. There was something in the moody and dogged silence of this pertinacious companion that was mysterious and appalling. It was soon fearfully accounted for. On mounting a rising ground which brought the figure of his fellow-traveller in relief against the sky, gigantic in height and muffled in a cloak, Ichabod was horror-struck on perceiving that he was headless, but his horror was still more increased on observing that the head, which should have rested on his shoulders, was carried before him on the pommel of his saddle. His terror rose to desperation. He rained a shower of kicks and blows upon gunpowder, hoping for a sudden movement to give his companion the slip but the spectre started full jump with him. Away, then, they dashed through thick and thin, stones flying and sparks flashing at every bound, Ichabod's flimsy garments fluttered in the air as he stretched his long, lank body away over his horse's head in the eagerness of his flight. They had now reached the road which turns off Sleepy Hollow, but Gunpowder, who seemed possessed with a demon, instead of keeping up it, made an opposite turn, and plunged headlong downhill to the left. This road leads through a sandy hollow shaded by trees for about a quarter of a mile, where it crosses the bridge famous in goblin story, and just beyond swells the green knoll on which stands the whitewashed church. As yet, the panic of the steed had given his unskilful rider an apparent advantage in the chase but just as he had got half-way through the hollow the girths of the saddle gave way, and he felt it slipping from under him. He seized it by the pommel, and endeavoured to hold it firm, but in vain, and had just time to save himself by clasping old gunpowder round the neck, when the saddle fell to the earth and he heard it trampled underfoot by his pursuer. For a moment The terror of Hans von Ripper's wrath passed across his mind, for it was his Sunday saddle, but this was no time for petty fears. The goblin was hard on his haunches, and, unskillful rider that he was, he had much ado to maintain his seat, sometimes slipping on one side, sometimes on another, and sometimes jolted on the high ridge of his horse's backbone, with a violence that he verily feared would cleave him asunder an opening in the trees now cheered him with the hopes that the church bridge was at hand the wavering reflection of a silver star in the bosom of the brook told him that he was not mistaken he saw the walls of the church dimly glaring under the trees beyond he recollected the place where brom bone's ghostly competitor had disappeared if i can but reach that bridge thought ichabod i am safe just then he heard the black steed panting and blowing close behind him he even fancied that he felt its hot breath another convulsive kick in the ribs and old Gunpowder sprang upon the bridge he thundered over the resounding planks he gained the opposite side and now ichabod cast a look behind to see if his pursuer should vanish according to rule in a flash of fire and brimstone just then he saw the goblin rising in his stirrups, and in the very act of hurling his head at him. Ichabod endeavored to dodge the horrible missile, but too late. It encountered his cranium with a tremendous crash. He was tumbled headlong into the dust, and gunpowder, the black steed, and the goblin rider passed by like a whirlwind. The next morning the old horse was found without his saddle, and with the bridle under his feet, soberly cropping the grass at his master's gate. Ichabod did not make his appearance at breakfast. Dinner hour came, but no Ichabod. The boys assembled at the schoolhouse, and strolled idly about the banks of the brook, but no schoolmaster. Hans von Ripper now began to feel some uneasiness about the fate of poor Ichabod and his saddle. An inquiry was set on foot, and after diligent investigation they came upon his traces. In one part of the road leading to the church was found the saddle, trampled in the dirt. The tracks of horses' hoofs, deeply dented in the road, and evidently at furious speed, were traced to the bridge, beyond which, on the bank of a broad part of the brook, where the water ran deep and black, was found the hat of the unfortunate Ichabod, and close beside it a shattered pumpkin." The brook was searched, but the body of the schoolmaster was not to be discovered. Hans von Ripper, as executor of his estate, examined the bundle which contained all his worldly effects. They consisted of two shirts and a half, two stocks for the neck, a pair or two of worsted stockings, an old pair of corduroy small-clothes, a rusty razor, a book of psalm-tunes full of dogs' ears, and a broken pitch-pipe. As to the books and furniture of the schoolhouse, they belonged to the community, excepting Cotton Mather's History of Witchcraft, a New England almanac, and a book of dreams and fortune-telling. In which last was a sheet of fool's cap, much scribbled and blotted in several fruitless attempts to make a copy of verses in honor of the heiress of Van Tassel these magic books and the poetic scrawl were forthwith consigned to the flames by hans von ripper who from that time forward determined to send his children no more to school observing that he never knew any good come of this same reading and writing whatever money the schoolmaster possessed and he had received his quarter's pay but a day or two before he must have had about his person at the time of his disappearance The mysterious event caused much speculation at the church on the following Sunday. Knots of gazers and gossips were collected in the churchyard, at the bridge, and at the spot where the hat and pumpkin had been found. The stories of Brewer of Bones and a whole budget of others were called to mind, and when they had diligently considered them all, and compared them with the symptoms of the present case, they shook their heads and came to the conclusion that ichabod had been carried off by the galloping hessian as he was a bachelor and did nobody's debt nobody troubled his head any more about him the school was removed to a different quarter of the hollow and another pedagogue reigned in his stead it is true an old farmer who had been down to new york on a visit several years after and from whom this account of the ghostly adventure was received brought home the intelligence that ichabod crane was still alive that he had left the neighborhood partly through fear of the goblin and hans von ripper and partly in mortification at having been suddenly dismissed by the heiress that he had changed his quarters to a distant part of the country had kept school and studied law at the same time had been admitted to the bar turned politician electioneered written for the newspapers and finally had been made a justice of the ten-pound court brown bones too who shortly after his rival's disappearance conducted the blooming katrina in triumph to the altar was observed to look exceedingly knowing whenever the story of Ichabod was related, and always burst into a hearty laugh at the mention of the pumpkin, which led some to suspect that he knew more about the matter than he chose to tell. The old country wives, however, who are the best judges of these matters, maintain to this day that Ichabod was spirited away by supernatural means, and it is a favorite story often told about the neighborhood round the winter evening fire. The bridge became more than ever an object of superstitious awe, and that may be the reason why the road has been altered of late years so as to approach the church by the border of the mill pond. The schoolhouse, being deserted, soon fell to decay, and was reported to be haunted by the ghost of the unfortunate pedagogue and the ploughboy loitering homeward of a still summer evening has often fancied his voice at a distance chanting a melancholy psalm-tune among the tranquil solitudes of sleepy hollow postscript found in the handwriting of mr knickerbocker The preceding tale is given almost in the precise words in which I heard it related at a corporation meeting at the ancient city of Manhatto's, at which were present many of its sagest and most illustrious burghers. The narrator was a pleasant shabby, gentlemanly old fellow, in pepper-and-salt clothes, with a sadly humorous face, and one whom I strongly suspected of being poor. He made such efforts to be entertaining. When his story was concluded, there was much laughter and approbation, particularly from two or three deputy aldermen, who had been asleep the greater part of the time. There was, however, one tall, dry-looking old gentleman, with beetling eyebrows, who maintained a grave and rather severe face throughout, now and then folding his arms, inclining his head, and looking down upon the floor, as if turning a doubt over in his mind. He was one of your wary men, who never laugh but upon good grounds when they have reason and law on their side. When the mirth of the rest of the company had subsided, and silence was restored, he leaned one arm on the elbow of his chair, and sticking the other akimbo, demanded, with a slight but exceedingly sage motion of the head and contraction of the brow, what was the moral of the story, and what it went to prove. The storyteller, who was just putting a glass of wine to his lips as a refreshment after his toils, paused for a moment, looked at his inquirer with an air of infinite deference, and lowering the glass slowly to the table, observed that the story was intended most logically to prove that there is no situation in life but has its advantages and pleasures, provided we will but take a joke as we find it that therefore he that runs races with goblin troopers is likely to have rough riding of it ergo for a country schoolmaster to be refused the hand of a dutch heiress is a certain step to high preferment in the state the cautious old gentleman knit his brows tenfold closer after this explanation being sorely puzzled by the ratiocination of the syllogism while, methought, the one in pepper and salt eyed him with something of a triumphant leer. At length he observed that all this was very well, but still he thought the story a little on the extravagant. There were one or two points on which he had his doubts. "'Faith, sir,' replied the storyteller. "'As to that matter, I don't believe one half of it myself.' D.K. End of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving Read by Bob Neufeld